Blog Talk Radio. Schneider. This cottage chic section will beautify any home. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we'd like to send you a free booklet by John called Is It Real? It's all about helping you answer the vital question, is my salvation the real thing? Request your free booklet by writing to real at gty.org. That's real at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through June of 2022. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's Grace to You Bible teacher John MacArthur. Well, we come today to the fourth chapter of Ephesians, and I confess to you that this is a chapter about which I have thought uh, maybe more than most other chapters in the Bible. And it goes all the way back, in particular, to the beginning years at Grace Church when I was seeking from the Lord to understand what was his desire for a church. 
And it was in those days as I was searching the Scripture that I came to the section that we're going to be looking at this morning, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. I don't know that I had really a clear understanding of it even when I went away to seminary. But in my seminary days, I, I was on the hunt, I have to say, to find the best possible plan to shepherd a church and do it the way God designed it to do and the way Christ wanted His church to go. And I wound up in this passage more than any other passage. And I'm telling you that because you need to know it's very hard for me to go over it lightly this morning. It has occupied much of my life, but I, I want to give you the overview of these very, very important words. Let's read from verse 11 to 16. And He gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, we have been looking at this chapter, and we remember that in verse 1, it says we're to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. We're to walk worthy of the divine summons by God to come out of darkness into light and become a part of His kingdom. And that's a high calling and a holy calling and a heavenly calling. How do you walk worthy of such a high calling? You walk in a lowly way. It's a lowly walk for a high calling. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance or tolerance, love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity is a very important thing to our Lord in His church. Jesus prayed that we would be one. And we are spiritually one in Christ. But He prayed that we would be manifestly one, demonstrably one, because of the love that marked our relationships in this world. We are to be diligent, verse 3 says, to preserve unity. You can see down in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Unity is critical in the life of the church, critical to the church's testimony. And in order to be united, we have to be marked by the virtues that we saw in verses 2 and 3. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, love, and diligence in preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Lord uh, reminds us 
of our doctrinal unity, our true spiritual unity, one body, the church, one spirit, the Holy Spirit, one hope of your calling, the calling to eternal life in heaven, one Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, the gospel and divine revelation, one baptism, baptism in the name of Christ, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now we've been talking about unity since chapter 2. It is so important for the church to maintain unity. And yet that seems to be such a struggle in the church. It shouldn't be. There's a pathway to this kind of unity. And we saw last time that it involves diversity. Verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. The unity of the church, the unity of the body of Christ is produced by diversity of gifts. We talked about that last time. Every believer is given a gift by which that believer ministers to the church and that way helps to build the body of Christ. So while unity is our objective and unity is our goal, and unity is what we strive for, necessary to that unity is diversity of gifts. So the Lord measures out, proportions out spiritual gifts to everyone in the church by which they can contribute to the growth of the church, which growth produces that ultimate unity. To each one of us was given a free gift, a spiritual gift. We looked at some of them in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 last time. And we looked at that passage in verse 8 that borrowed from Psalm 68 where it pictures the king who triumphs, wins the great victory. God is that king. He wins the victory over Jerusalem and then ascends to His throne with all the spoils that are His for such a triumph. And that's a picture of what has happened with the Lord. He came down to this earth. He died on the cross, was buried, rose again, and by His work on the cross and through the resurrection, He won souls for His redeemed church. And He ascends back to heaven as it were, sits down at the throne of God, having purchased the redemption of His people. And then He takes the spoils of that triumph and gives them back to His church in the form of spiritual gifts given to every individual believer. And not only spiritual gifts to every individual, but gifted men. Gifted men. That is the second part of this triumphant gift that comes from the Lord of heaven. And that's where we are in verse 11. And He Himself gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? We know He gives spiritual gifts to individuals, but what are the function of these gifted men given to the church? The answer comes immediately in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints or for the perfecting of the saints. Katartizo in the Greek means fully equipped, full-grown, mature, complete, perfect. What is the perfection that this is talking about? Well, that appears, and we'll see more about it in a moment, but that appears in verse 13. 
the mature man there, the perfect man, is the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So the objective of our Lord in the church is to give everybody in the church spiritual gifts so they can minister to each other and build up the body. And then give the church gifted men whose responsibility it is to aid in their spiritual growth and development by perfecting them, spiritually perfecting them. Anything short of this is to fail to understand what ministry in the church is about. God is not demanding sinless perfection because it's clear in 1 John that if you say you haven't sinned, you, you lie. It's clear in Romans 7 that Paul says, I don't always do what I want to do, and I often do what I don't want to do. There's a certain wretchedness clinging to me. So we're not talking about perfection as the kind of perfection that characterizes Christ, not until we get to heaven. But for now, it's completeness in the sense of maturity, being a grown-up believer. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, Be made complete. And then he defines it by saying, Being of the same mind and the same judgment. So part of that maturity is understanding the truth so that you think alike about the truth and you discern things with the same judgment. In 2 Corinthians 13.11, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete. And again, he's saying, grow up, be full-grown spiritually. Galatians 6.1 says that if someone is caught in a trespass, those who are spiritual are to, same word, complete, mature, or even restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So we are to be about that in our own lives, and we are to be about that kind of maturing, that kind of completing in the lives of those around us as well. 1 Thessalonians 3.10 says, Praying praying that we may complete what is lacking in your faith. So part of this is the responsibility to pray for one another so that we will receive what is lacking in our faith, so that we will grow in our faith and trust. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21, May the God of peace equip you, perfect you, in every good thing to do His will, that's what the equipping does. It enables you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. So the objective here is to mature believers so that they do the will of the Lord, that they do every good thing that honors Him and everything that's pleasing in His sight. It takes some suffering to help us along the way, so Peter adds, after you have suffered a while, the God of grace will Himself perfect you. So there's some suffering that is necessary to develop us spiritually. That's why James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, because they have a perfect work. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says that we are to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So we can say then that the objective of the church 
is to become Christ-like, to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is a kind of uh, maturity. That's why the word mature is used in verse 13. And a number of times here you see the term grow or growth. We're all in the process of growing in sanctification toward Christ-likeness. Now the Apostle Paul reminds us that we're not going to achieve it in this life. Listen to Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus laid hold of me to make me like Himself. That's what He will do and that's what I need to pursue here in this life. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's the prize of the upward call? We're like Christ. That is the prize. That is the goal. We won't realize it fully until we get to glory, but in the meantime, that is what we pursue in this life. That's a great challenge. It's a great challenge. You have the Holy Spirit or else it would not be possible at all to move one step forward in sanctification. But we need more help than that. So, the Lord has given to the church, look at it in verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are the gifted men who, verse 12 says, equip the saints. 1 Corinthians 12.28 says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And what do the gifts of men do? Perfect the saints. That's pastoral responsibility. That was the responsibility of the prophets. That was even the calling of the apostles. It struck me interesting. I was reading one of the principles of a church called Elevation Church this week. And this is one of their main principles. Here's a quote from their document. We need your seat. We are more concerned with the people we are trying to reach than the people we are trying to keep. That's not a church. When you are more concerned about the people that aren't there than the people that are there, you have missed the entire point. Because the objective of all ministry is the perfecting of the saints. Now let's look a little more closely at this, and I'm just going to give you an overview in the brief time that we have. The preachers of perfection, we'll call it, in verse 11. Here he presents the gifted men. And verse 11 says, He literally Himself gave. These are spoils that our Lord won at the cross. He Himself, as He gave the gifts to all believers in verse 7, He gives the gifted men. They are His gifts to His church. Some of them are apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. What about the apostles? Well, we know who they are. I won't go into this. We've done this many times through the years. 
The apostles were those whom Jesus chose. The original twelve, Judas disqualified in Acts 1. He was replaced by Matthias. And then later on, the apostle Paul became the final apostle. And these are identified as apostles of Jesus Christ. Specifically, apostles of Jesus Christ. And we know that they had some very extraordinary duties and extraordinary power. They were basically called to do three things. One, to preach. They were the first generation of preachers trained by Christ. Secondly, to attack the kingdom of Satan and cast out demons. You can see that in Mark 3. And in order to validate them as truly the representatives of the true and living God, 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, they were given the power to do signs and wonders and miracles. The apostles. How else would you know that this is a true apostle when there are teachers everywhere? Believe the one who does the miracles. He demonstrates divine power. Now these apostles had some very serious responsibility. Go back to chapter 2 and verse 20. It says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And down in chapter 3, verse 5, it says that divine revelation has been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So these first two, the, these first two were very unique, very unique. They were the foundation, Christ being the cornerstone. They had received divine revelation. The apostles are identified as apostles of Christ. Apostle means messenger. They were sent out to proclaim Christ, to proclaim the kingdom of God, to proclaim the gospel. In the book of Acts, of course, to proclaim the cross, the resurrection. So they are unique. There was no succession. There were no apostles after them in the sense of an apostle of Christ. In uh, 2 Corinthians 8, it does mention apostles of the church. This would be a sort of a lowercase a. This is a messenger from the church. In fact, the NAS translates it messenger because that's what the apostle word means in its generic sense. So there were messengers of the church, 2 Corinthians 8.23. But we're talking here about apostles of Christ, companions of Jesus for three years. They will sit on... Twelve thrones in the kingdom, according to Luke 22, and they will be identified in the glory of heaven by twelve stones in the heavenly city of Jerusalem, uh, and their names will be on them. Now, there's a little bit of a debate about whether number twelve is Matthias or Paul. I vote for Paul. <laughs> but the point is, this is a very, very, very small group of people, and no one ever succeeded them in that sense. They were the ones that our Lord talked to in the upper room and said, the Holy Spirit's going to come 
bring to your remembrance everything I've said to you. It was through them and their associates that the New Testament was written. That's why the early church in Acts 2.42, when it got together, studied the Apostles' Doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine. Divine Revelation. Now what about the prophets? The difference seems to be bound up in the fact that the prophets don't give doctrine as such, but they do receive revelation from God on a practical level like Agabus, who got a word from the Lord about what was going to happen to Paul when he got to Jerusalem in the book of Acts. The prophet seems to be associated with a local church, with a local church. In fact, when for a few years Paul was a pastor at Antioch, he is identified in Acts 13.1 as a prophet. It means a preacher. They did have, as I just showed you, a foundational role, so there was some extraordinary elements of that in the first generation. They were preachers, but they didn't have the New Testament yet. So the, the Lord not only made available to them the Apostles' Doctrine, but may have given them other revelation. Certainly, He did give them revelation on a practical level about life in the church. So they are foundational. Uh, the prophets might preach something that was new from the Lord, or they might reiterate something that had been revealed already to an apostle and passed on to the prophet. They seem to be more involved with practical pastoral church ministry where the apostles were like ambassadors and missionaries traveling with the gospel. So they are the foundation of the church. And it lets you know that at the very foundational level, you have some who take the gospel to the people who haven't heard it, and you have others who preach and shepherd the church, namely the apostles and prophets in that foundational generation. Go back to verse 11, and you will meet those who replace them, the evangelists and the pastor-teachers. The evangelist would be like an apostle. He's sent to preach the gospel. That word is not used very often. Evangelist, only three times here. And with regard to Philip the evangelist and Timothy, 2 Timothy 4-5, do the work of an evangelist. But the verb form, euangelizo, and the noun form, euangelia, which means the gospel or proclaiming the gospel, appears uh, maybe a hundred times in the New Testament. So the, the responsibility of the evangelist was to preach the gospel. That's what the word means, to preach the good news. In the early church, there needed to be evangelists. They would be church planters. They would have the, uh, the, the strength of the building up of the church because they would lead the charge in doing evangelism and proclaiming the gospel. They were the trainers of the congregation to do evangelism. And I've always thought, since way back when I first came to Grace over half a century ago, amazing, that the church needed evangelists. Typically, when churches would build a staff, that, there would never even be a discussion about an evangelist. 
They would hire a pastor, an assistant pastor, a youth pastor, and on and on and on. They would go through the litany of people. But where are the evangelists? Where are those who have the passion to proclaim the gospel? Those who can train the congregation? So very early on, we were committed to that, to having evangelists who developed evangelism training for our church, discipleship evangelism, thousands of people, including many of you, have gone through that, who would build all kinds of evangelistic outreaches and efforts, whether in the community or beyond our church neighborhood or to the ends of the earth. We would have people whose passion was the proclamation of the gospel to the people who had not heard. And as a pastor, that was the first thing that I wanted to see. I I need some evangelists because my job is to preach and teach to the saints. Somebody's got to lead the charge to reach the lost. And that is what evangelists do. If um, you're going into ministry and maybe you see yourself as an evangelist, many churches need you desperately. Or if you see yourself as a teaching pastor, you need to find some people who are basically designed by God to reach lost people. We have those kinds of people. They, they go door to door in this neighborhood. They go down to abortion clinics. They go down into the middle of the city, down in Hollywood or wherever they go, and they take people with them to do personal evangelism. They go to the jails and the prisons, everywhere. That's the role of evangelists. And then teaching shepherds, just to mention it, is obvious. This is the one who feeds the flock. Feeds the flock. The word uh, pastor there is actually shepherd. Every other time this word appears in the New Testament, it's translated shepherd, poimen. It's shepherd. What does a shepherd do? Two things. Well, three things. Guide, guard, feed. Guide, guard, feed. So these are the people who shepherd the flock of God. First Peter. Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. That's what teaching shepherds do. Now, I, I have no problem with this being sort of hyphenated, teaching shepherds. The little chi there in the Greek could mean teachers, that is, preachers. Why do I say that? Because in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, we read, the elders who rule well, so that's a very important element of it, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So there's really no separation of preaching and teaching for the role of the shepherd, the pastor. There's a different function. Preaching is proclamation. Teaching is more didactic. And it is true that churches have teachers because that's what 1 Corinthians 12.28 says, teachers. A church should have many, many, many teachers. A church should produce teachers of the Word of God. That's, that's what this church has done. We continually draw, attract, train, 
people who teach the Word of God. This church is filled with teachers because that's the priority. I tell the young man at the seminary, you will attract the men who want to do what you want to do and what you do. Whatever it is that you do, you'll attract the people to your ministry that want to do that. So be all about preaching and teaching. And you'll raise up a force of people who can handle the Word of God and feed your flock from all different kinds of tables. Now, these evangelists and teaching pastors are really the elders of the church. The elders and the shepherds are the same. And as we read, you also rule well as an elder. So that's the word episkopos or overseer, translated in the old King James bishop. So pastor, bishop, or overseer, elder, all the same person. Shepherding describes the role of guiding, guarding, feeding. Elder describes the maturity, the age, and overseer shows the responsibility to rule. Again, 1 Timothy 5 says, rule well. Rule well. And unless that might seem to you a little bit heavy-handed, I would draw your attention to Hebrews 13 and verse 17. This is instruction to the congregation. Obey your leaders and submit, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. You say, well, we're supposed to obey and submit to our leaders. That gives them too much power. No, that gives them immense accountability. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they watch over your souls. That's what pastors do. They watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. A miserable pastor makes a miserable church and a miserable congregation. So it's a very simple structure. Early on it was apostles and prophets. Now it's evangelists and pastor teachers. Those are the preachers of perfection. So the Lord doesn't expect you to become mature, become complete, to, to grow into Christ's likeness all on your own. He gives the church gifts in the form of gifted men for the perfecting of the saints. So let's look then at the progress to perfection. We saw the preachers of perfection. Here's the progress. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. The gifted men equip the saints. What do they equip you with? With the Word of God, right? Preach the Word in season and out of season. The passion of any faithful pastors, evangelists, and teaching shepherds, any of them, their passion is to see their congregation made complete. If you go back a couple pages to Galatians 4.19, Paul says, My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. I'm in labor until Christ is formed in you. In Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Him, that is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom 
so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. This is the pastor's task, the equipping of the saints, the perfecting of the saints. That's the first step in the path of a faithful church. And how do we do that? We do it with the Word of God. It is a serious responsibility. In 1 Thessalonians 3, listen to the words of Paul in verse 8. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. That's what satisfied Paul. People standing firm in the Lord, growing up, being mature. And he says, for what, verse 9, what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? So in Hebrews 13, it says, if you don't submit to your leaders, they'll do it with grief and not with joy. Here is Paul saying to the Thessalonians, the most faithful church in the New Testament, that he is thankful to God. He doesn't even have words to say to God in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account. But still, night and day, keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. It's not that you've arrived and I would love to be with you. You bring me so much joy and continue to help you Grow spiritually. That's what a pastor's job is. The equipping of the saints. And the pulpit sets the pace for that clearly. The preaching of the Word of God, the preaching of the cross, it might be foolishness to the world, but not to the church. Now, the second step in this progression is when the saints have been equipped, they do the work of service. Diakonia, word from which you get deacon. This just means ministry. Ministry. All kinds of ministry. And they use their spiritual gifts to do that. What happens in the church so often is you get lay spectators and sort of professional preachers. And that's far from the Lord's design. The preachers perfect the saints. The saints do the work of the ministry using their spiritual gifts. And that's what we've done for over half a century here. And what comes from that? And I'm just going to touch lightly on it. What comes from that? The building up of the body of Christ. How do you build a strong church? How do you do that? You have gifted men perfecting the saints who do the work of the ministry. And because they're doing the work of the ministry by using their spiritual gifts and applying all the one another's of the New Testament, they're building each other up and the whole body of Christ grows. The body is built up. It's built up internally. And no doubt it's built up externally as well. So the preachers of this perfection are identified. The progress of it, pretty simple. Perfect the saints. They do the work of the ministry. The body's built up. 
Then we come to the purpose of perfection. What is the purpose? Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. What is the purpose? Christ-likeness. The unity of the faith. The unity of the faith. The unity around the truth. The knowledge of the Son of God. This is at the very heart of this. I don't think you can perfect the saints unless they're growing in the knowledge of the Son of God. I think back over all the years of preaching through the Gospels, 25 years of the 50 years here, I was in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But, but those aren't the only books to tell about Christ. The epistles describe His, His atoning work. All the sound doctrines that are around the Gospel are laid out and explained in the epistles. The book of Revelation, we've gone through that a couple of times, His coming glory. We spent a few years in the Old Testament looking at all the places Christ appears. And as we grow in our knowledge of the Son of God, we come to a mature man. The unity of the faith, and we all unite around the true and revealed faith in Scripture. And we focus on the Son of God gazing into His glory, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and are changed in His image from one level of glory to the next by the Holy Spirit. So that the church manifests the fullness of Christ. That's an absolutely magnificent picture. God is not satisfied that you go to church. He's not satisfied that a church has a certain number of people. He demands that we all come to bear His image and that collectively the whole church is Christ-like. That's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what maturity looks like in the church. looks like Christ. That we should be then showing the world Christ. Sad to say that that's not what the world sees from most churches. But that's what the Lord requires of us. And by the way, that's a long-term process. In our case, half a century. But in any case, it's a long-term discipling process. And we've had the amazing privilege here at Grace Church of a half a century together so that we've gone through the entire New Testament, much of the Old Testament. And you've been taught in fellowship groups and Sunday school classes and home Bible studies and all kinds of endless other collections of believing people around the Word of God. And the church begins to look like Christ. It begins to think like Him and to act like Him. And that's where witness becomes powerful. Two things come out of that. And I guess um, we, we could say these are the... Uh, these are the benefits of this perfection. First is protection. First is protection. Verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves 
and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. There are lots of uh, false teachers, right? False apostles. False pastors. They're everywhere. But the church that has the deep knowledge of the Son of God, the epignosis, that's a deep knowledge, not a superficial one, and has come to the unity of the faith that is characteristic of a mature man and comes to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, that church is mature enough to be protected. Like John said in 1 John, we have overcome the evil one. You are strong and you've overcome the evil one. How do we get strong? He said you're a spiritual young man. In other words, you started out a spiritual babe and, and you got tossed around. You grew and you became a spiritual young man and you overcome the evil one. It'd be very difficult for somebody to come in here and seduce us away into false teaching. And there are, there are men trying every possible trick trickery of men may be contrasted by the craftiness and deceitful scheming referring to Satan because the New Testament talks about the schemes of the devil. So how do you protect yourself from the trickery of men and the schemes of the devil? You have to be grown up. You can't be a child. And I would hasten to say that many churches are childlike, hopelessly childlike. And there are many of the leaders in those churches who are equally childlike and childish. You don't put the children in charge of anything. You don't want a church that feels like a seventh grade event. So the first benefit is protection. The second is proclamation. Now, in our maturity... We speak the truth, verse 15, in love. And when you do that, you have reached the apex of the church's purpose in the world. Right? Why are we here? To go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. To live godly lives. Lives marked by love that makes the gospel attractive. We speak the truth in love. And as we do, we grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Paul kind of goes back at that point in the middle of verse 15 and picks up sort of a summary. Okay, the end of this progress is we're now speaking the truth in love. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. We're speaking the truth in love. That's the reputation. That's what people see. That's what can only be explained supernaturally by the power of Christ. And so he goes back to, as if to summarize it. We are then to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, every individual with every individual gift, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You can only speak the truth in love if you have been built up in love, you can only be built up in love if you grow in all aspects into Christ-likeness and the body functions as He designed it to function 
So it grows and it becomes manifestly marked by an inhuman, supernatural love. That's the church. That's how the church is supposed to be in the world. I just have to say how thankful I am to the Lord to have been placed in such a church. This is that kind of church. Not perfect, but we're not expecting perfection. But this is a church that has followed this pattern for half a century, that has had faithful evangelists and teaching pastors, and still does, equipping the saints who continue to do the work of the ministry. The body is built up. We enjoy unity, deep knowledge of the Son of God, spiritual maturity, and all that comes with the fullness of Christ permeating everything in this church. We are not children. We are not easily seduced by false doctrine. And we are committed to speaking the truth in love. And that's because all the parts of this body are functioning. And it's being built up in love. Even God declared the importance of love in reaching the world. He said this through the Apostle John. For God so, what? Loved the world. Whatever the world needs to see in the church to make the gospel believable, whatever people might think that is, it comes down to love. The supernatural love, and that again is John 13, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. We are marked by love, and we speak the truth in love. That's a mature church where everybody is doing their part. And being built up, the body of Christ looks a little bit like the Lord Jesus Christ and manifests His love. That's the pattern for the church. That has to be the goal. Any other goal needs to be thrown out. The only way to grow a church is to stay within the boundaries of Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. That's a faithful endeavor that honors the Lord of the church. Let's bow in prayer. Father, so much comes to mind in all these wonderful realities. Thank You for what You've done in this church. Not that any of us are worthy. We're not. Nor are any of us to gain the credit. We have all given so much, everything we have to this church. But even all of that, if it were just a human effort, would amount to nothing. So we know the Spirit has been alive and working in this church through the Word, through the leadership, through the saints, and we are seeing the fruit of it. We would desire nothing more than that you would look at this church and say, I see a reflection of myself. Not perfect, but I see a, 
at least a faint reflection of myself in that church. That's our desire. And may the world see it as well and be drawn to you, our Savior. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Man.
sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again. He came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again. Nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again. Fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus. When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is gonna spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever say, worthy is the land. What's up? Natural selection is not evolution. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's Word. There's a bait and switch happening every day in schools, museums and media. What do I mean? Well, evolutionists will provide examples of natural selection such as Darwin's finches. They'll show how these finches have different sized beaks, allowing them to eat different foods. Then they'll say, see, we're observing evolution. But what they're really observing is small changes within a bird kind. You see, the genetic information to produce different beak sizes is already there. It's built into the finch's DNA. For evolution to happen, you'd need brand new information to produce brand new features. And you know what? We've never observed that. It's only variation within a kind. Yes, the evidence of evolution is missing. Find out more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again when you go to AnswersRadio.com. To praise the one who has the crown In today's lessons, we'll talk about the Holy Bible The most important book we all need for survival The Bible is God's message for this world It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl And that message is that if we turn to Christ And place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school Like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah Joseph and Samuel, but all the little stories tell one big story about the God who made all things for his glory. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. the Bible, we 
should we begin? When God made the whole wide world just by speaking. By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve. Made in the image of the beautiful most high. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you surely go to die. I'm sure you know the rest. Yes, they failed the test. And ever since then, the world has been a big mess. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. When we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used crafts to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a stab. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. Mutations, Evolution's Engine? This is Ken Ham, publisher of our award-winning family magazine, Answers. What's the driving force behind evolution? Well, supposedly it's mistakes in our DNA called mutations. Most mutations are very harmful to an organism and cause disease and death. Some go unnoticed. Only a select few are beneficial and only under very specific conditions. And these few kinds of beneficial mistakes can't account for the remarkable variety and intricacy we see in creation. Mutations simply don't support evolutionary ideas about the past. But starting with God's word, we can understand mutations. God's creation was originally perfect but was cursed because of sin. And mutations began. Discover more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. You'll learn about creation, evolution, science, and the truth of the Bible when you go to our website at AnswersRadio.com. What is prayer? Prayer is offering up our desires to God for things agreeable to His will.
Christ came and paid it all when our Lord was crucified. Before this time, our sin and vice meant we could only come to God with fear. But now through faith in the risen Christ, we can pray and God will hear. And though we can't see him, he's close not far. So it really doesn't matter how old you are because of Jesus. links. This is Ken Ham, CEO of the Global Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. You may have heard the phrase, the missing links are still missing, and it's true. 
When asked for examples, evolutionists usually mention the so-called whale series, some ape-like creature, or maybe a fish fossil with lobe fins. But are these really missing links? No. You see, it's all about interpretation. Evolutionists interpret the fossils in the light of their worldview. They must have transitional fossils, so they force the evidence to fit their worldview. Now, in a biblical worldview, these missing links are simply variety within created kinds. So when you strip away the evolutionary storytelling, fossils don't contradict God's word. Find answers regarding fossils, geology, and more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or subscribe to receive free insights at AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. He made us all, y'all. Yeah. God made us all, y'all. God made me and you. Sing, children. No, we He did it to show off his glory and worth. In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse is God made a world that is truly diverse. From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees. From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas. Each in their own way, they God, they are praising. The difference is cry out. God is amazing. But the crown jewel of the work of his hands are made in his image, both woman and man. We're not accidents, we are part of his plan. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. who trust in the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation. Chapter number seven, the church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation together, forever, with saints of all kinds, through each the glory of the Lord's gonna shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go.
Yeah. Different colors and different shades, all differently and wonderfully made. Through each the glory of God displayed. God made me and you. For all of our you, all our loss, all of great need for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cost. God made me and you. Different colors and different shades, all fearfully and wonderfully made. Through each the glory of God displayed. God made me and you. For all of our you, all our loss, all of great need for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cost. Does similarity mean common ancestry? This is Ken Ham, author of the book on millions of years in compromise in six days. Have you ever heard the term homology before? It refers to the similarities we see among living things and it's considered a textbook example of evolution. But just because something is similar doesn't mean that it had a common ancestor. Consider a bicycle and a motorcycle. They're similar because they're designed for the same purpose and to function in a similar environment. It's not because they have a common ancestor. And it's the same in the living world. Living things were all made by a common designer to live in the same world and perform the same basic purposes. So it's not surprising at all that God used a similar design. Find out more about the truth of God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and find resources to help your family, church, or Christian school at AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was 
as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the About my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still, you pursue relentlessly. At times, I wonder how this can be. Surely, it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So, even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever, this grace, it will remain. Because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Evolution in the womb? This is Ken Ham, inviting your family to visit our massive Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky. There's an idea that's still taught in textbooks that's been debunked for decades. What is it? Well, it's the idea that an unborn baby progresses through supposed evolutionary stages. Some textbooks continue to list gill slits and tails in human embryos as evidence for these supposed evolutionary stages. But the gill slits are just throat pouches. They'll form features such as the inner ears. And the tail isn't a tail. It's the coccyx or tailbone. It's where the muscles will eventually attach so the baby can sit, stand and walk. No, we don't go through evolutionary animal stages as we grow in the womb. That's a false idea based on evolution. Plan to tour the three decks of exhibits at the Ark Encounter after you visit our website, AnswersRadio.com. Your whole family will be equipped. Go to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah, a mighty fortress. A mighty fortress.
Hey, I wanted to explain what happened earlier uh, on the show, like when <laughs> in the beginning. It was uh, me playing the Viavili like a fish, but usually I play it from YouTube, and now they added commercials and stuff in it. So part of it was that, and part of it messed up something on the keyboard, and I was trying to play it back in order. Went back, <laughs> but obviously it was messed up, so sorry about that. Now I have downloaded the file, and I'm going to I've uploaded it to the Laptop Radio Virtual Studio, so next time I'll be able to do that and play play that and without interruptions, so sorry about that again. Thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. You can find out more about us. Go to truthbetoldradio.com truthbetoldradio.com and now I am going to play. This is from. It's called When We Understand a Text, also known as What WWTT. The Purpose Driven Life is one of the best-selling books ever. Rick Warren called it the anti-self-help book because of the opening line, It's Not About You. He then makes it all about you. The book is written as a 40-day spiritual journey answering the question, What on earth am I here for? He says that life is all about bringing glory to God. So far, so good. He encourages love, mercy, prayer, obedience, baptism, evangelism, and discipleship. But there is no clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. On day seven, Warren says to quietly whisper the prayer that will change your eternity. Jesus, I believe in you and I receive you. If you sincerely meant that prayer, congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. This false conversion prayer has led to many false converts. In Mark 1.15, Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. He told his disciples to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But Warren never tells sinners to repent, nor does he warn of the judgment of God, which is the reason we need a Savior. What good is Warren's purpose-driven life without the purpose of the gospel? Though the book contains many Bible references, they're often ripped out of context, chosen from just about every translation to make the Bible say what he wants. In the end, the purpose-driven life will lead a person into more error than truth. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that God has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, when we understand the text. John Pavlovitz is a Unitarian Universalist pastor whose blog, Stuff That Needs to Be Said, became popular through Relevant Magazine. At that time, he was blogging about how the Bible is not God's word and Rob Bell is awesome. More recently, he's written about how Jesus Christians would wear masks and God is non-binary. So yeah, you know where this is going. Unitarians are so heretical in their theology that atheists can pastor their churches. They preach that homosexuality and the murder of children through abortion are morally good. Yet Pavlovitz insists people who don't wear masks are the real killers, and Alabama is three years away from becoming Nazi Germany. I am not making that up. Pavlovitz's first book was called A Bigger Table, about being more inclusive, but his social media is dedicated to ripping on Christians, Republicans, and Donald Trump. He wrote another book called If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk, while he makes swear-laden put-downs on Twitter. Even the shirts he sells are vulgar in the name of love. It's astonishing how blind he is to his own hypocrisy. 
To be blunt, there is nothing redeemable about what this man teaches. He hates God, his word, and his church, which is why the world loves him. He makes his money slandering Christ and his bride. John the Apostle called teachers like John Pavlovitz antichrists. They are from the world, says 1 John 4, 5. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth from the spirit of error when we understand the text. That is Pastor Gabe, and he does when we understand the text uh, for, for WWTT. And you can find it on YouTube as WWTT and their website, WWTT.com. And they have short ones like this, only about a minute and a half. Plus that, and then they got, he's got longer lessons than he does on, um, I think it's WWT text. Let me write it in real quick. WWT text. Yeah, yeah, that's it. He does longer lessons at WWTT. Well, WWT text. So, find out more about him on there and on the website www.utt.com. And thanks for sending me with controller. And I am going to play. This is from Todd Frio and Wretched. What if I don't have a choice and both parties present terrible candidates? What do you do? Do you not vote? That's what some Christians determine. I would offer this. If that is your choice when it comes to voting for politicians as you consider the character of politicians, take yourself back in time. Bring yourself back to the first century. Let's say Nero was your emperor. He was, he was putting Christians on pikes and lighting them on fire to be torches at night. That's the type of leader that you've got. And then all of a sudden, you've got a two-party system. And you get to vote between two really bad guys. If you were a Christian, you'd have been like, who? Which one of the bad guys is the least bad guy? Wouldn't you? And maybe exactly that paradigm is the one that we are entering into in the 21st century. And while I do believe it is ideal that a leader is a godly person with morals that are in alignment with biblical principles, if we are confronted with the choice where we do not have that option, I know it's a bit of a cliche, and I don't know if you're going to want to throw something at me for this, <laughs> but voting for the lesser of two evils is probably about the only viable option we have. You okay with that? I'm good with that. Really? Oh, yeah. Cool. We're done. <laughs> Your debates might be a little zestier if you get yourself wretched worldview at the study guide at wretched.org. Hey, you begged the question. How do you respond to the accusation that Christians are hypocrites because it appears we used to care about character, but now we don't? Let me steal this from Dr. Nathan Boosnitz. Reframe the issue. Rather than a focusing foremost on character, focus on policies. When presented with two options, we consider the policies. And the person who represents the more moral, biblical perspective on the important issues of our day, like abortion and marriage, then the scales tip for that person 
despite their character, not because of it. To repeat, it is better if they do have character, but ultimately it is less about their thought life or what they do behind closed doors and what it is that they sign and promote. Therefore, the Christian, rather than finding ourselves in the defensive posture of, well, yeah, I know character is important, but we used to, and then Bill Clinton, but now we got to We vote for the one who represents the most biblical ideals, and hopefully they got a lot of character, but if they don't, we vote for them anyway. That was from Wretched, you see him on YouTube, as W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D, Wretched, and that was from their actual TV show, and they got a radio show or podcast called um, they're both on wretched.org, as you mentioned, wretched.org, and check those out. And what I'm going to do for you next is I'm going to play a song. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Ben. Up, hands up, if you truly love the son of man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the son of man, trust, Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land, what's up, surprise, no surprise, I'm back in your section, with Jesus, his death, burial and resurrection, more power than gravity, his knowledge and strategies confound the academy, Took up blame on Calvary. Those who love his name spread his fame into policy. All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice. That's prize our master Christ and rise in the afterlife. What? Did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth. The gospel is not fake news. I get a sin, the gospel sweeter than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed, let us in. We got the medicine. It's still human emergency, the serpent attack. You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts. Spin up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? Stop and listen to my composition. Lots of rhythm, but not traditional, kind of different. But God's consistent, no contradiction, my proposition. Through crucifixion, he mocked and crippled his opposition. It's not some fiction, I'm spitting, the Son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the Spirit, he brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proposition is my suspicion, we drop the mission. Not to this, but the Word of God, is it not sufficient? The doctrine is that the gospel fixes. Is our shock condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in 
the background like elevator music. But we gon' celebrate them, relegate them, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the father wasn't gracious, no synonym. Again, he came straight blameless, no synonym. Again, nothing's been the same since, no synonym. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no synonym. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Then, up, hands up, if you truly love the son of man, trust, Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land, what's up, stand up, hands up, does anybody love the son of man, trust, Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land, what's up, worthy is the land, what's up, worthy is the
writing this to you I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning Cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning And this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just a holy trinity Ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously Loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago Outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know But Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the Supreme by far, not just because of what you do, but simply because of who you are. There's none like you in existence. You are God and you need no assistance. Even though we show you resistance, you sent Jesus to close the distance that existed between God and man. According to your sovereign plan, we changed many times in one lifespan. I changed even since this song began. Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us. All that you do will certainly last. You are the rock that we can trust. Shows us back in eternity past. As long ago as that was, as long ago as that was. Have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, About my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies. Still, you pursue relentlessly. At times, I wonder how this can be. Surely, it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So, even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished, that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever, this grace, it will remain. Because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change
next on Truthy Toll Radio, I'm going to have, this is from a clip from Wretched Worldview, and it says, should Christians be environmentalists? And here we go. The objection we hear is that the earth is getting hotter. Let's give this one a maybe. In the last 80 to 100 years, it is pretty clear that the data has the earth getting hotter. Not long enough. You need more time to determine a pattern. 80 years ain't long enough. What are you, a liberal? That's a fair point, actually. <laughs> That's a fair point. I like the razzing and the buzzer. Very effective. It, it's true, I, the, uh, your, your point, in other words, that uh, the Earth, I think, is hotter in this span, but we don't have data from before that time. So it's hard to prove anything conclusively. In other words, we should give this one a big fat possibly, okay? Secondly, we hear I'm pro-science, and all serious scientists believe in global warming. Here again, a maybe. Uh, it's a good thing to be pro-science. Every Christian should be pro-science, and yet the scientific consensus is very much split about global warming, about catastrophic climate change. So Christians should be very skeptical about the argument that being pro-science means being pro-global warming in the sense that you believe it is happening and it is catastrophically happening. So we need to be uh, skeptical on this count as well. Third, we hear that there's no way the earth is getting hotter. This is obviously on a slightly different side. People who hold to more of a conservative position might say this. I, I think we want to recognize as Christians that we need to have this kind of skepticism about the issue. In other words, there needs to be a really long trail of data that decisively and conclusively proves that global warming is happening. So I actually think we're justified in objecting to the global warming consensus along these lines. Fourth and finally, we hear that the whole battle is just politics playing out. The world's going to burn anyway. If we're not careful, if we have this kind of mentality, we wouldn't end up being stewards of the earth. We wouldn't end up caring for the earth, taking dominion of the earth in a right uh, form, theologically and biblically. So, yes, at the end of the day, as a Christian, the whole world is going to be remade decisively and completely by King Jesus. That's absolutely true. So we do not have the same theology, the same philosophy as secularists have on any issue or this issue. At the other, on, on the other hand, we also have to consider, though, that we need to be stewards of the earth, that we need to take good care of the world God has made. So, as Christians, in conclusion, let's avoid global warming hysteria. Let's uh, not jump to hasty conclusions. Let's always follow the data precisely where it leads. Let's have a lot of skepticism, a ton, actually, about secular claims. And as Christians, let's steward the earth to God's glory. Wretched Worldview, available right now in the Wretched Store. And just, just, just so you know, uh, some of the other subjects uh, actually are pretty contentious. <laughs> Again, that's from Wretched. Check them out at wretched.org, W-R-E-T-C-A-T-D dot O-R-G. And thanks for listening to Trippy Toll Radio. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T R U T H B E T O L D 
R-A-D-I-O.com. TruthBeToldRadio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at TruthBeToldRadio.blogspot.com. That's TruthBeToldRadio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. This is Big Questions, Short Answers. Big question. What is the gospel? My experience, most professing Christians do not know the answer. I've asked many, and their responses have ranged from the gospel uh, to the gospel is Matthew, Mark, Ringo, and John. All the way to the gospel is a story of a good example from a good teacher named Jesus. That is not how the Bible defines good news. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, for I am not ashamed of, there's our word, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In other words, the gospel is the good news that our sins can be forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, that's what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Charles Spurgeon understood that verse as being kind of important. The Prince of Preachers said, if the Lord's bearing our sin for us is not the gospel, I have no gospel to preach. The implications of this good news, huge. Number one, the gospel demolishes all works-based systems. Number two, the gospel is a stumbling block that says, nope, you can't earn your way to heaven. Jesus did, you can't. Number three, the gospel is about Jesus, not merely the story of salvation. That's an easy mistake to make. We talk a lot these days about the gospel is great, the gospel is groovalicious, the gospel is amazing. All of that is true, but let's not forget the gospel is not mere theology. The gospel is about Jesus. It should cause us to love him more. And finally, implication Number four, the gospel is the central message of the Bible. Big question, indeed, 
what is the gospel? Short answer, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, the God-man who died for sinners that we might be saved. That's all I got for Trippy Toll Radio. As well, Yancy and friends and the VIVA. Bye for now. The beat.